Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. Last time, Steven gave me such a hard time for my spelling of werewolf. But on the Discord, I will have everybody know that Steven repeatedly called the book Golden S-U-N, which is not the title of the book. The title of the book is Golden S-O-N. So I just wanted to uh, throw that out there so that all the listeners know that that mistake happened. Wait, wait, wait. Can can I blame this on speech recognition, though? (laughs) You may try. You may try to do that. I'll try, but okay, in all honesty, you got me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was saving it for this moment, so. Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of Ontology Podcast. Before we get started, let me just again mention that if you like the content we're putting out, join our Discord server and chat with us. You can find that on the pinned tweet on our Twitter account, at Fentology Books. There was a lot of good conversation today about really a pretty wide-ranging scope of all of all fantasy books yeah it was super entertaining we got a few few more people for the first law trilogy and they've been keeping things lively and then a couple people joined just for the cosmere talk i think the thing i was most impressed about we have a few people that know like six languages on there and they're like ah it's not that impressive very impressive for somebody that only as somebody that only knows one language that's very impressive yeah it's some pretty highbrow conversation on the discord channel so Only join if you feel like you're up to it. Anyway, we are reviewing Golden Sun by Pierce Brown today, and I've been on the line with me. Ben, you just finished reading the book, right? I did, yeah. And this is the sequel to Red Rising that you read not that long ago as well, so you're kind of tearing through these. I am, yeah. it's They're hard books to stop reading, that's for sure. So for someone who hasn't read Red Rising or this book, uh, give us a little primer of what this series is, what what someone can expect going into it. Yeah, so if you have not read Red Rising and you're coming into it brand new, I think the way we summarized it on the Red Rising podcast still holds true. It's kind of like a Hunger Games meets kind of grimdark and you kind of mash those together and it still is able to be a YA book, although you probably don't want like 10-year-olds reading it. So, And it follows a somebody that kind of comes up from the dredges of society and he's, he's rising up to break the chains and to try and lead a revolt against these, this godlike structure and godlike uh, people that have kept the lower classes down. So that's kind of the overarching um, synopsis of the series. And this is a sci-fi series, not your typical fantasy, right? Yep. It is definitely a sci-fi. Although for some reason, like most the weapons that are, that are used end up being like medieval weapons. You know, it's kind of like it is sci-fi, but it's also ends up kind of, you forget that aspect, or at least I do when I'm reading it, it kind of feels like still kind of classical medieval fantasy at points. Yeah. So it's definitely more of a soft sci-fi, almost a space opera, kind of like what you see in star Wars. So the actual way the technology is used is not explained at all. You just kind of get a sense of it's happening and then the way that things are described and the way the technology works is kind of like a there's a fantastical element to it. And there's a lot of Greek mythology and more ancient human themes that are drawn upon in the naming and just in the way that people talk. It's 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 a really cool mashup of a lot of different elements of literature. And it, I think it's done pretty well. Yeah. 
So at the end of Red Rising, well, the majority of Red Rising takes place at the Academy, right? That's what they call it. And that is basically your Hunger Games fight to the death type thing. And the the winner, Darrow, is our main character. It's a first-person narrative written in present tense, which can be a little grating at times. But if you just kind of stick with it, you'll you'll get used to that. Anyway, Darrow has just won the competition at the Academy, and he seems to be set up for success, getting a mentorship, internship type thing with one of the leaders of the Gold Society. But this book kind of starts, it doesn't start right from the end of the first book, right? There's a bit of a time gap. Yeah, there is a bit of a time gap. It kind of retroactively, like you you think that it's going to start right at the very right from the first book, but then you find out that it's really him kind of remembering that time, which is kind of weird for the book. Normally it's like, it's first person. So it's like what's happening right now, but he kind of thinks back to what happened right at the end of the first book a lot. And I guess we should probably do our, our content warning and our little blurb of the book before we get too far into spoilers, but we can talk about that more. So yeah, give us a little content warning. I think this is probably, probably pretty similar to the, the content advisory we gave in the first book, Red Rising, right? Yeah. I would even say, Maybe the first book is a little bit more violent than this book. Yeah, the first book has more mono mono violence, right? Man on man violence. Yeah, and this book is more in space, exploding and watching things explode and and people burning and dying, which is still violent. But I don't know; it just seems a little less graphic, right? Yeah, I think so. So, and then there's still some language, but not not nothing crazy. Sexual content, not so much, right? Right. Not it it fades to black whenever that does happen. There there is, I should say, there is a lot of talk about like there's one class structure that has kind of been like are kind of made to be prostitutes. And so like that should go in the sexual content rating. Like if you don't want to expose your readers to um a lot of talks about prostitution, then then you should be aware of that. Okay. So not 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 a ton, but yeah. Definitely some more adult themes, although a lot of it happens off camera. Mm-hmm. And did you read this or listen? I did listen to it. I think the narrator did a, a pretty good job. So that didn't distract from anything. I don't think it added too much to it in the way that uh, that the first law narrator um, adds to it. So yeah, it, it was solid. Well, I have someone on a Goodreads review that would disagree with your... Ooh review of the narration okay good read poster yeah this poster you, you may have heard of him pun intended patrick rothfuss Ooh. yeah yeah so his review of the book is five stars he says he likes the book but the majority of his review is actually about how awesome the narration was and how it added to the story and and he felt like uh, the narrator's voice stuck in his head like when you read read some text next to a picture of morgan freeman wow well you know what I also listened to it at like 1.5 to 1.75 speed. So I'm, I'm not really in it to be enthralled with the, with the narration. Well, doesn't everyone listen at that speed these days? You know, I would hope so, but I would not be surprised if people are unaware of that button. Yeah. In fact, if you're listening right now, listener, if you're listening at one speed, please turn the dial up to 1.5. We sound much cooler. Yeah, for sure. Much smarter. Okay, so I'm going to give a little blurb from the book. Actually, I'm just going to read the little thing from Goodreads because I think it does a pretty good job. So it says, As a Red, Darrow grew up working the mines deep beneath the surface of Mars 
enduring backbreaking labor while dreaming of the better future he was building for his descendants. But the society he faithfully served was built on lies. Darrow's kind have been betrayed and denied by their elitist masters, the Golds, and their only path to liberation is revolution. And so Darrow sacrifices himself in the name of the greater good, for which Eo, his true love and inspiration, laid down her own life. He becomes a gold, infiltrating their privileged realm so he can destroy it from within. A lamb among wolves in a cruel world, Darrow finds friendship, respect, and even love, but also the wrath of powerful rivals. To wage and win the war that will change humankind's destiny, Darrow must confront the treachery arrayed against him, overcome his all-too-human desire for retribution, and strive not for violent revolt, but a hopeful rebirth. Though the road ahead is fraught with danger and deceit, Darrow must choose to follow Eo's principles of love and justice to free his people. He must live for more. So how does that summarize? Because honestly, that review kind of dramatizes the book as if we're about to watch that movie. Yeah, and I think that that's a good kind of accurate way to view the book. It is very much, it feels like you're watching a movie throughout a lot of it. I have some kind of pet peeves about that that we can discuss if we want to kind of jump right into spoilers from here. Yeah, let me just say before you do that, it seems like that review talked a lot about the themes of the book. And I thought the themes were there and fairly strong. But honestly, the thing that I remember most about these books is just the nonstop action and the plot twists probably like five to ten times. You have betrayal and betrayal of betrayal and betrayal of betrayal of betrayal. It's a little hard to follow sometimes, but that's kind of what kept me reading, never knowing what was going to happen next. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the moment you have like three big twists in a book, it kind of seems like it's almost overboard. But I think that in this book, it was done better than most. Yeah. So any idea how he, how Pierce Brown writes this to successfully keep you interested, even though the plot is always twisting? And I guess what I should say is keep you believing that it's still possible for there to be a story. Because if you twist the plot too much, you just start not caring because it just gets ridiculous, right? Yeah. So I have a few speculations on that. One the way that's told just from Darrow's perspective allows for that, I think, because as awesome as Darrow is, he's not the smartest when it comes to politicking and considering everybody's motives. And so I think that because his perspective is relatively narrow, he's able to be surprised by by things sometimes. And so that means as a reader, we're, we're also surprised by that. Yeah, it seems like he's always trying to keep his head above water dealing with a lot of these gold leaders, dealing with the sovereign, right, is the leader of basically the whole solar system. And people have a lot more resources, and they've got all these different personal vendettas that he's not a party to. But he's still kind of able to like weave his way in between everyone and and kind of play people off each other quite a bit. He, He does that fairly well. But then also, he himself gets stabbed in the back several times in ways that maybe he should have seen coming. Yeah. And so I think layered on top of that is the fact that he does a good job at making people like every single person is extremely selfish. And so that allows them to backstab and betray at a much higher rate. So I think that's also kind of leads to more plot twists. If you have a set of characters and everybody's just in it for themselves, then you're not surprised when when people act in their own self self-interest. So jumping to the very end of the book the big twist, right? That the cliffhanger at the end of the book, Darrow himself is betrayed at the end of this parade, honoring his great victory. 
in the galaxy and he's betrayed by his his bestie roke right and didn't that seem like something he should have seen coming because as a reader roke was always more and more dissatisfied with how things were going and more and more distant and weird and you just knew something was going to happen right like you knew there was no way they were just going to kiss and make up yeah and i think one of my favorite lines and i'm going to butcher it i should probably look it up but it's he's trying to make amends with rokes with roke and he says something like there's or roke says something like friendships take like days to form moments to end and then years to remake or something like that and i think that that's really like insightful for any friendship right like you you can make friends relatively easily and then you can just like destroy them in a second right with with an act and he kind of made it clear that that darrow had dis- destroyed their friendship the moment that he he made him like pass out during the big duel. yeah he made him pass out so they wouldn't be at the party when when darrow was planning on blowing everybody up but the moment that that happened he like lost all of rook's trust right and there's a little bit of stuff before that but like that was the major um, impetus for their friendship deteriorating. He never trusted him enough to yeah. tell him he was a red and tell him his true motives. And so I don't really fault Roke all that much. He's seeing his best friend here become weirder and weirder and more distant, and he's doing things and not including him, even though he probably should have been included. So it kind of makes sense. No, it for sure makes sense. So I have nothing. As a reader, it was pretty clear that that was going to happen. Also, the jackal. What's his name? I don't know. I just like the jackal. Yeah, it should have been clear that like everybody was telling him, like Severo was telling him the whole book not to trust the jackal. Don't trust the jackal. And he's like, oh, it's fine. The jackal and I like understand each other. And then boom, like he gets betrayed by the jackal. You know, come on. Yeah, Darrow is super arrogant. Honestly, do you like Darrow that much? I You kind of do just because you're following him, but man, he's arrogant. Yeah, and I think that he gets a pass for being arrogant because the only way, the only way to do what he's doing is to be arrogant, right? You can't build yourself up from the dregs of society and cause a revolution without some type of arrogance. So I think it's a necessary character flaw that, that he has. Yeah. It's like go all in or don't go in at all. Because if he was, if he was not in entirely and not being the arrogant, peerless, scarred gold, then he would have been taken down really fast. And you see that with other characters. So I'll just say I like the book overall. I think that there's a few scenes that bothered me because of the way that they were implemented. So I don't like, and somebody actually pointed this out on Discord, was the way that the writing is done is very like staccato-y, like short and se- short sentences. I think we talked about it last podcast, and it just kind of jumps around a lot. Kind of, you don't notice that as much in the narration. But I actually feel like that kind of happened in the story as well. So I feel like Pierce Brown was really good in envisioning scenes, but there was hardly ever a bridge from scene to scene. So as an example, there's like three scenes that stuck out in my mind. There's the scene that he goes to talk to Roke about their friendship. And we've, we kind of discussed that. And then like right after that, or right before that, like these three scenes kind of just jump, jump to each other. He also had a scene where he convinces the Obsidian, I'm forgetting his name. Ragnar. Ragnar's sweet. He's one of my favorite characters. Yeah, so he convin- He like tells Ragnar that he's a red, convinces him to be on their side. Like that scene happens. And then he also has the scene with Mustang where they kind of like 
are having like a love confession scene and it's like, will they, won't they? Like those three scenes basically just jump to each other with like no other like bridge between them. You know, he like, he like walks out of a meeting with Ragnar and finds, finds Mustang in the cafeteria. Like these are such sweet scenes, but I don't feel like they're earned very well, if that makes sense. So Darrow's just an emotional robot. Yeah. And, and it's like, have some type of like story rather than just like, that's why it seems almost like a movie to me is it's just kind of like one scene fading to another almost. Yeah. So do you think he does that? Because the whole premise of the book almost is just this nonstop action, right? There's almost no downtime ever. So maybe the staccato nature of the actual plot line kind of contributes to that as well as the writing. And that's just what he's going for the whole time. And so even though, yeah, maybe a real human being would not, act like that in this story he has to yeah i get that it's not really what i'm used to i guess is and that's maybe my problem but to me i'm like you got to earn some of these epic scenes that we're going to you know one moment we're like confessing love to each other and the next we're like making a huge invasion of a planet you know what i mean yeah and i think you're right on with a lot of the criticisms that people have of the series it's really kind of a love hate from what i see on goodreads and in the community most People either just gush about the book, they love how action-packed it is, they love the characters, they love all the twists, all those things are valid. But on the other hand, people who hate it are like, Darrow is such a Mary Sue, he's coming out of nowhere, he always knows the right thing. Even when he makes mistakes and fails, he still kind of succeeds because he's able to turn it around back into his favor. And I mean, I guess at the end, you don't really see that. So we'll see how he does in the next book, no spoilers. So so it all kind of hinges around Darrow's character, whether or not people like the book or not. Yeah, that's fair. One thing that I really liked about the book, though, was how great of a second book it was. So like a lot of times, like you like call it the sophomore slump or whatever, like the second book has a really hard time. But this was like one of the fav- my favorite second books I've ever read. I felt like it did a great job at taking you from the first book where you've kind of been on your own little world and they're in the Institute they're fighting each other. And then you have a sense that there's these other like politics that are coming into play. I think it did a really great job at keeping the spirit of the first book and suddenly dumping you into these stakes that are much higher, but, but keeping that same spirit alive and also having great scenes and a big twist at the end. Like it's just done really well for a second book. Yeah. Agreed. Is it, is it the Institute? I think I said the Academy before that's, that's my bad. I think you're right. It's the Institute. What's up with all these fantasy books that give their schools these super generic names like In Name of the Wind, The University? Can we come <laughs> up with a better name? These authors spend all these times coming up with these complex, obscure names for people. And then The University, The Institute, The Academy. Come on. Yeah, I mean, look at Say one thing for, say J- for J.K. Rowling. Say that Hogwarts is a cool name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's plenty of things we can say for J.K. Rowling, but... <laughs> yeah, her, her naming is is awesome. Anyway, that was a love hate duo right there. I thought that he needed to do better earning scenes, but I thought that the that the book as a second book was awesome. Yeah, let, let me respond to that after I corrected my error. I totally agree, and this is one of the things that I'll mention to someone who's read the books is I really like the premise of the first book when they're at the institute and it's kind of this world within a world, and you don't get to see the broader the broader scope of the conflict but you still get a sense of what the series is like at, at its heart, what the series is. 
And then in the second book, boom, it expands it. And you're, the conflict is now in the whole solar system. But it keeps that same feel really well. And like you said, a lot of second books kind of struggle with that. Like after, for example, after the first Hunger Games, after the first Hunger Games and the success of having this tournament to the death, the second Hunger Games comes along and what does she do? Just writes another tournament to the death, like no difference. And I can't think of another good example, but I feel like a lot of second books do kind of struggle to replicate the success of the first book. Maybe even the the first Mistborn, Mistborn Era 1. The first Mistborn is awesome. It's this heist story. You get a real sense for the world. And then Mistborn 2, Well of Ascension, kind of boring. They're traveling around. You don't nearly have the same stakes and and pacing that you do in the first book. And so I guess when I say sophomore slump, that's what I mean. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I know it's been a while since you've read the book. Do you have any scenes that you that you still remember like all all this time later? Yeah, I actually remember several scenes. So the most memorable scene was the duel between him and Cassius, right? When all of the families are kind of aligned. It's almost like, like a big meeting of the, the mafia, right? And they kind of have these Italian names, the, the Bolognas. <laughs> yeah. And so they're meeting up and they have this duel and Darrow cuts his arm off and wins. But then there's like a, a side conflict that comes in and blows everything up. Or is, that was Darrow's plan the whole time, right? He kind of realized that the um, Empress. The Sovereign. Yeah, the Sovereign was going to, was already planning on on taking out House Augustus. So his whole plan was to make it clear that she was favoring Cassius's house and going to take out house Augustus. And so he wanted to kind of expose that side of her. And so by, by making her stop the duel, it it really exposed that to all the houses. You can kind of make that Mary Sue argument with Darrow because like of all the things that he didn't see coming, somehow he like was able to interpret that random plan that the sovereign had, you know, that's pretty smart of him. Yeah, he either did really well or really poorly. Like he was either spectacularly betrayed or he triumphantly was the betrayer or exploiter of knowledge of other people's plans. Do you remember the scene with him and the Sovereign where they like both had to tell the truth about everything? Yeah, there's like the death scorpions. Yeah, awesome scene. He tricks her or she is about to lie and the scorpion's going to kill her. But then Flitchner is able to kill the scorpion before it strikes, right? Yeah. Awesome scene. I, again, that was like a scene where I wish that it would have been later on in the book where like there was like more of a rivalry between the two of them. And so it was more of like a meeting of the minds. I feel like at that point, there wasn't enough stakes for that for that to happen. But it's still an awesome scene. I also wish that in that scene, Darrow asked her certain questions about like where weapons were located, where ships were located. And like she answered I wish that that information had been used down the line. You know what I mean? I am fairly certain it is in the third book. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's cool then. Okay. Because in this book, there's not, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm going to say this in broad terms, so there's no spoilers, but there are no real strategic maneuvers around planets, right? That's right. Well, I mean, Mars, but yeah. 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 Okay. So you'll see that more in the third book. Okay. The conflict expands even more, and it also and it still does a great job of keeping the spirit of the story. Well, props to that, then. It, it gets better and better as the series goes on. So one other scene that I remember was when he takes Mustang back to meet his mother and go back to Mars, right? Meet the parents, uh, reveal his big secret. That was probably the climax, although with this book, there's really not a climax 
as much as you have in other books. Like there were just all these mini peaks right. of action. But the scene with Mustang and his relationship with Mustang is really at the very core, the very heart of the story. So what do you think of that scene? Because that's not resolved in this book, right? Mustang could have killed him and Ragnar, right? He's there with Ragnar. Could have killed them, but she just walks away into who knows where. Yeah, so I love that scene. I like a few things around that scene. I love how he kind of goes back and he wants to hate those people that had like made his life hell, but he just can't. He realizes that the society just kind of messes everybody up. So he has a hard time hating people that he grew up hating. And so that was a cool like meta moment for him to have. I thought that his mom's reaction was like perfect. I thought like that whole scene nailed it. I think it's more resolved than, well, my impression was that it was more resolved where the moment that Ragnar bowed down and proved that he was more than just a killing machine. I think that Mustang realized that her worldview needed to change and that she's in the process of of coping with that now. And the fact that she escaped and she's like not part of Severo's plan, not part of Rogue's plan, and it's kind of like on the run from that. It was my impression that she's still with Darrow, but that she's working through all the emotions around it now. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair conclusion to have at, after this book. I feel like if not for Mustang, keeping Darrow's view of society like she's what gives him hope right yeah well i think that that was ragnar's character too and it was aries aries the fact that this this gold was able to see the light like he's kind of he sees more and more people they're able to see the flaw in the society and kind of break those pre-existing notions that they had and so i think that while mustang might have represented that at the beginning he has a lot more people that have kind of helped him and and that he's able to rely on now yeah i like that he is realizing that while there are serious problems in the universe the the whole thing doesn't need to be blown up there's a lot of quality people out there they're just all struggling and held captive by a lot of the same chains that the reds are the same chains that he's trying to break are really the same chains that are binding everyone yeah and so i i really loved Fitchner's character and the fact that he turned out to be Ares, that was awesome, beautifully written. One of those things that you could have seen coming, but probably didn't, but there was enough foreshadowing that you could have. So that was great. Yeah, agreed. And I don't like the fact that to me, like that death came close to like Ned Stark's death when I was watching Game of Thrones. I, d- I haven't read the, the book. It was like this character that you think is going to be like super instrumental and that you're just now like really starting to like, and then boom, like his head is like on a platter. So massive spoilers for Game of Thrones if you haven't seen it, but I guess that's just the first book in season. But really, that's shocking. Was it shocking or was it just in terms of you thought the story was going to go somewhere and then it didn't because Bammy's dead and his head's off? Yeah, I mean, it was shocking in the sense that like you've been waiting for that reveal on who like Ares was and the fact that it was Fitchner like blew everybody's mind, at least blew my mind. And and so you then expected this character to like help Dara out and be like this guiding force. And then that was just, it almost felt like me as a reader had my like legs chopped out from under me, you know? Oh, I see. So you thought it was going to be more important because Ares has been a much talked about and speculated about figure. And then you find out who he is and then he's dead. And the fact that like he was somebody, he was a character that you already knew made it that much more impressive and made it seem like it was going to be that much more ingrained in the story. If that made sense. 
At least that's that's what I thought when I was reading it. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about several side characters here. Out of all the side characters, who's your favorite? Okay, Severo, awesome character. The fact that he ended up being half red, like, come on, that is sweet. Severo is probably my favorite side character. Also really like Ragnar as a side character. I thought that that he was like one of the first people that Darrow told that he was a red and that that kind of like got him to be more open with the fact. That's awesome. And I feel like just in general, like I feel like one thing that the book has kind of struggled with was utilizing the the class structure that it set up. Really the only classes I can name are the golds, the pinks, and the reds. And now all of a sudden we have like this obsidian that are that's really instrumental to the book and and is able to break his own chains. Yeah, that's true. It it sets up this class structure, but you really the story just revolves around the golds and the reds. It does talk about that more in the third book. You get more blues and I think there are greens well. I mean, it still includes them. It includes them, but it doesn't have them breaking that the chain that they're bound by. You know what I mean? Like and I feel like Ragnar just really was a character that highlighted that other classes are also bound with chains and that they're fighting their own internal battles. Yeah, Ragnar is easy to love. He's probably one of my favorites as well. Ragnar, Severo. I also, I liked Roke quite a bit, even though that was more of a tragic story. I mean, up until this point, it has been no spoilers for the end. Mustang, obviously a favorite of mine. If you've ever listened to a podcast, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go for that. And who else? Cassius. I love his, his frenemy his freneminess with Cassius because they were so tight in the first book and Cassius cannot let go that Darrow killed his brother. So I think a lot of these characters have real motivations and seem like real people, except for Darrow. Darrow is just this superhuman robot of no emotional sense. <laughs> I don't know how you have this like feeling of Darrow, but like you love quotes so much. It's very confusing to me. Yeah. Mm, I, I need to think about that more. I can't, I don't know if I can explain that right now. Okay. Well, you get more real moments with Quoth. Like in the second book, man, when Quoth is on the ceilings of, or, or on the roofs. Wait, are, we are we going to spoil some? Uh... No, no, this is not a big spoiler. Okay. In the second book, when Quoth is, he's on his own. He's been having a hard time. He is up on the rooftops at the university and he's just bawling his eyes out over his parents and these things that have happened years ago. And man, I gets me every time. Gets you. Wow. It's tender. So I feel like Quoth is a pretty real character, even though some will disagree. Daniel Green will disagree, but whatever. I mean, I don't care about his. <laughs> okay, so let's see. One thing that bo- bothered me throughout the whole book was the fact that Daryl gets like trampled on repeatedly. I think I brought this up the first book. And there seems to be zero like negative physical. He just like, he gets stomped on and then he's like all better at the next ch- like page. Yeah, we just reviewed Dresden Files, and it's somewhat the same with Dresden, although you do see Dresden's health bar going down throughout the book, and then by the end, he really is struggling to even take another step. But yeah, Darrow has always got another gear that he can go to. Is some of that explained due to just medical advances, like they slap a med pack on him or something, and he's fine? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like he wakes up, and he's like, oh, looks down, and I got a new skin graft. You know, so it is kind of explained, but like... Dude, you just had like a sword and you said it went, you felt it go through your collarbone. You're going to be uh, out of commission for a little bit there, you know? Well, on the other hand, he had a whole operation to turn him into a different person with enhanced physical abilities. Yeah. And I mean, he also had uh, the Viper 
venom that has strengthened his heart beyond even gold levels. So you have that going for you as well. Forgot about that. He's even better than the regular gold. <laughs> right. Yeah, Darrow's Darrow's so overpowered. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you love him, but he's overpowered. You love him, but you kind of hate him at the same time. Yeah. Okay, should we do some worst of the best? Yeah, yeah, let, let's do that. So go ahead and give me yours. And while you're doing yours, I'll try to think of one for me. Okay, so this I have a very strong opinion about. The fact that the words that Io didn't tell Darrow and told his or her sister was that she was pregnant with a baby. And for a little bit of the book was like Darrow's like motivation and inspired a new level of hatred for this society. So there's a few things that I didn't like about this. The thing that I loved about it was that that there was this mystery of Eel's last words. And I thought that that was built up really well. And I was like looking forward to finding out what, the, what those were. So I loved that. But I hated the fact that they used like an unborn child as like what those last words were. And I hated it for a few reasons. One, like my wife's pregnant right now. We're having the baby. Anyway, so it like hit home. But also, I just felt like Dara already had enough reason to hate the society. Like he didn't need another one. You know what I mean? Like he just didn't need another one. The society has, is already tremendously terrible. They already killed his wife. The fact that his wife ended up being pregnant is tragic, but it, it shouldn't have been like this thing that spurred him on to new hatred. I don't know. It just didn't feel, it was such a letdown of what those words were that I was like, well, that was just like, just felt really hollow to me. I can see that. The author just, Pierce Brown, ups the ante and never stops upping it. And so I guess he felt like he needed Darrow to have even more motivation for the last third of the yeah. book. But like, as a reader, I wanted it to be a development. Oh, Eo knew who Ares was. Or Eo knew some information that she wanted to pass on to, to Darrow, but not at that point in time. Something like that. But not the like it just needed to do something to develop the story, but it it didn't. Fair enough. Okay, mine is going back to the beginning of the book. So it starts kind of in media res when you see the very end of their training at this Starfleet Academy. I don't remember the name of the academy. It's probably something generic like the academy. But you get the end, like the the very end of all their training, and you get to see how they've advanced and such. But I kind of wanted to see that. I, it felt like it might have been a, a cool time. It really developed a lot of the character relationships. So why not show it? I, you know, my thought is perhaps he thought it would be two Ender's game and he didn't want to copy what had been done before. So he just picked up and said, OK, the story is going on. We're just going to continue on. But they needed to have this plot growth like they needed to have advanced to the next level in order to make it a, a, a galactic conflict. But I don't know. Maybe you could have done another book where they were doing that. I agree that I look forward to that short story whenever it comes out. Hopefully it does. I also, I love the fact that he was like getting ready to like launch himself in that pod at the end of that battle. And he stopped from doing that. And then that ends up being the move near the end of the book where he, he uses that same move to board somebody else's ship. Yeah. So that was some cool foreshadowing. And that was actually one of the questions that the Empress asked him, like, were you really going to do that? And it was kind of her like assessing, like, are you really, are you really that selfish as a selfless as a goal to like risk your life doing something so crazy? That was a big piece of information for her. And so 
I thought that was really well done, that that specific part of it. Nice. Good setup. I, I like when authors set something up and then harken back to it later and you realize the significance. Yeah. Okay. This has been our review of Golden Sun, book two of the Red Rising trilogy by Pierce Brown. Thanks for listening. And Ben is going to finish reading the series and we will bring you the exciting conclusion in Morning Star, right? Yeah. And just so I, I couldn't let this go unanswered. Last time, Stephen gave me such a hard time for my spelling of werewolf. But on the Discord, I will have everybody know that Stephen repeatedly called the book Golden S-U-N, which is not the title of the book. The title of the book is Golden S-O-N. So I just wanted to uh, throw that out there so that all the listeners know that that mistake happened. Wait, wait, wait. Can can I blame this on speech recognition, though? (laughs) You may try. You may try to do that. I'll try, but okay, in all honesty, you got me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was saving it for this moment, so, you know. Burn. I've, I've been burned. Nice way to end. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> all right. All Sounds right. good. <laughs>